If you would, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Our text, this third Advent Sunday, is verse number 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We've been looking at the royal titles um, ascribed to the Messiah here in this passage. There are four of them. There are four Sundays of Advent, and so we've had one for each Sunday. Thus far we've looked at Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Today we look at Everlasting Father. Two things I think should become clear to us in this study as we go through it, um, through these four Sundays, is that first of all, the New Testament accounts of Jesus coming into the world as the Messiah rely heavily on the Old Testament promises about the coming of the Messiah. But the second thing is that the fulfilling of these promises is not always as straightforward as we might want or might imagine, we might hope. We find the New Testament writers using the Old Testament passages in a way that we probably wouldn't and sometimes ways that we are not quite comfortable with. That is to say, the connections between the anticipation and the historical reality of Jesus coming into the world, for us, don't always seem to quite match, don't seem to be an exact fit. So, if I were to ask any of you, um, just say a sentence or two about a wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, um, you might be able to say a few things how Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. But the one we come to today, the title we come to today, Everlasting Father, I think we would have a more difficult time with. As we look at and consider this title, there are a number of things I think that we need to discuss. The first, which I think is the issue, is that the Old Testament refers to God as Father. The, The Old Testament language oftentimes does not address him directly as father, but sees him as father. His actions are seen as those of a father. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 4, then say to Pharaoh, this is what Moses is to do, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, that so he may worship me. In other words, I'm Israel's father, he is my son. And then in Isaiah 63, but you are our father, Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. And then in the next chapter in Isaiah 64, Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? In Psalm 64, Sing to God, sing praise to his name, Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. 
He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. And then Psalm 103, a part of which was the promise of forgiveness today. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. These are just a few of the passages, but time after time in the Old Testament, we hear God spoken of as Father. But this is the question. This is the critical question, I think, that how we answer this affects how we view the Christian faith. Was God referred to as Father based on our human fathers, or are our human fathers named fathers based on God as Father? It's a truly important question, and it will, it should affect the way we view truth. You see, either we imagine that you have a pagan world full of polytheists back in the Bronze Age, if you wish, and they're worshipping all these different gods, some of whom they refer to as father, some they refer to as mother, they have all these different images, and then suddenly out of, out of this polytheistic mess comes this monotheistic people, the Jews, the Israelites. They see that there is one God, and they refer to him as father. That's one option. The other option is that God truly is God. And as he revealed himself, he revealed himself gradually, progressively as father. And that was the basis for the human family with the father as the head of that family. This is not a small thing. This is not an insignificant issue. I suspect that in people's zeal to counter the terrible, the horrible things that have come out of patriarchal societies, some have suggested that Yeah, the primitive people, the Jews way, way back when, before Moses even, somehow anthropomorphized God, and so they began to see him as a father figure, and therefore we call God father because of what these primitive people did millennia ago. And then once they did that, it sort of gave justification for a male-dominated society in which the fathers could do with their wives, with their children, with their servants, with everyone under them in the household, they could do as they pleased. And so in reacting against such demeaning patriarchal societies, we might be tempted to say, no, actually, that's not how it works. We call God Father, but he's not like our earthly fathers, but that's where we got the name. In that sense, then God simply becomes a projection. And we call him father because of our earthly fathers. And if we go down that road, then we actually lose all claims to truth. And we simply become one faith, one religion among many. The reality is that God has revealed himself as father. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 3, I think in a critical passage that at least for my money is oftentimes overlooked. Philippians, I'm sorry, Ephesians 3, 14 or 15. For this reason I kneel before the Father, 
from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. In other words, we have earthly fathers because God is our heavenly father. And throughout the scripture, we're told what a father is supposed to be like. Supposed to be like God the father. Fatherhood in earthly families is based on the fact that God the father is, in fact, the true father. The Lord is compassionate and gracious as the father has compassion on his children. In the benediction that we hear almost every Sunday, we hear, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a Trinitarian pronouncement. And in Paul's writings, whenever he speaks of the Lord, he's usually speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he speaks of the Spirit, obviously he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. When he speaks of God, he is speaking of the Father. And what he tells us here is, it is the love of God. This is who God is. God is love. It is one of his attributes. This is a matter that we could discuss at some length, but I mention it here simply to lead up to what follows in terms of the royal title. If God is spoken of in fatherly imagery, it is not surprising then that the task, the things that God does as father, are assigned to the one who will come, the Messiah who is to come, he who is the Son of God. And he is called Everlasting Father. The task of the king, it's a royal title, remember, is to do fatherly things. We don't think that way. We think in political terms, oftentimes military terms, um, often in times uh, in terms of tyranny. But the reality is the king, who has been put there by God, is to act as a father to those who are under him. In Psalm 72, I read a part of this last week. This is one of two psalms by uh, King Solomon, included in the book of Psalms. Endow your king with justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the people of the needy, save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. This is what a father is supposed to do. And this is what a king over the people of God is supposed to do. In Psalm 82, defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. One could make the argument, and I would, like God, like king. That is, as God is as father, so should the king be as well. The protection of the family is the work of God, and it should be the work of the king. The language used recognizes, as we should, that a society cannot flourish. Indeed, it will not prosper unless some real attention is paid to those who are weak to those who are the vulnerable in society. And if a a king fails to do this, then in a sense the people no longer have a father, a father who in fact will watch over them. Ezekiel 34 is critical in this matter, and if if you want to turn to there, you can. I'll read uh, several portions of it. But here Ezekiel is in fact 
speaking against the father kings, the shepherd kings of Israel who failed to take care of the people. And this led to their exile. Beginning in verse number two of Ezekiel 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountain, over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. The shepherd kings that Ezekiel speaks against were not father kings to the people of Israel. They did not act as father. They failed to feed the sheep, the people, to strengthen the weak, to heal the sick, to bind up the injured, to bring back those who had wandered off or to seek those who were lost. Instead, they did what we normally associate with monarchy, with kings, sometimes even with patriarchal societies. They ruled harshly. They only took care of themselves. They didn't care about the people that they were supposed to be fathers to. This resulted in the people of Israel being scattered, becoming prey for all the wild. They went into exile. But as the chapter continues in Ezekiel 34, we get a picture of God the Father doing what the kings as father failed to do. Beginning in verse 12, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. There they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Because the father kings failed to do what they should do, God, who is father, will in fact do what must be done. And as the chapter unfolds, later on we hear of a future king who will in fact act as he should. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my shepherd, I'm sorry, my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. You will notice, by the way, that the anticipated king is not referred to as a king, but as a prince, indicating on some level, I think, that God is the king. He has the initiative. He has the prerogative and the responsibility. But his servant, David, whom he will send, will act in his place. He will do the fatherly work of restoration. The kings were self-indulgent. But that's sort of what we expect. That seems to be the view that we have oftentimes of monarchy. But now we hear, in fact, 
of an everlasting father. The third of the four royal titles. It is anticipated that the person in this position will be reliable over the course of generations. He is everlasting and he will take care of his people. The everlasting father as king is the guarantor of the peace, the shalom for his people. Having said all that, some would still find it awkward to refer to Jesus as the everlasting father. If he had been called the everlasting son, that would fit in with what we see in the New Testament of the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. In fact, when you go through the Gospels, um, Jesus is always referring to God as Father. Just in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter five, Matthew chapter 5, three times uh, Jesus refers to God as Father. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And then later in chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then in the next chapter, chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, 12 different times, Jesus refers to God as Father. I think the most notable one or the one that we remember the most is the Lord's Prayer. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He goes on to speak of forgiving, that if you forgive, your Father will forgive you. And then at the end he says, don't worry about things such as what you will eat or what you will wear. For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows you need them. And then at the end, in chapter 7, twice we hear Jesus referring to God as Father. If you then, though you are evil, and we would say fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? A few verses later, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It is interesting, at least to me, that in Matthew 23, which would have been our reading from the New Testament today, uh, where Jesus speaks against the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, he mentions three titles that the people of God are not to take upon themselves. Um, You are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. All of this, if you put it together, seems to really push against what Isaiah tells us about the royal title that he will be known as the everlasting father. At the end of his life, on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then at the end, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So how is it that Jesus fulfills this third title? How is it that we would even dare to speak of him as the everlasting father? Do you remember what we heard in Ezekiel chapter 34, where the father kings failed the people? What did they fail to do? To feed the sheep, to strengthen the weak, 
to heal the sick, bind up the injured, bring back those who had wandered off, and to seek the lost. Do you recall the first time Jesus spoke in his hometown synagogue after his time in the wilderness, after his baptism? He read from Isaiah 61. He read simply a portion, but the people knew the passage. It was a familiar passage. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. I would say this is precisely what Jesus did. Jesus did the work of a father. In Luke we are told that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He does what a shepherd, what a father king should do. To go out and seek those who have lost, to bring them back, to bind up the brokenhearted. And in doing this, we see him as the everlasting father. Before his death, in John 14, Jesus told his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, as fatherless if you wish. I will come to you. He does the work. He did the work of a father. What about the everlasting part? Well, before his ascension, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. For every generation, he is the Father, the everlasting Father. He's not God the Father. We get confused. He's God the Son. But he does the work of a father. As we see it spelled out in the Old Testament, what a father is supposed to do for his children, this is what Jesus does and has been doing for his people through the centuries. So he is in fact the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, but also the everlasting Father. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps it is the time in which we live that we want exact fits. We want things to fit together like jigsaw puzzles, or like Legos. Oftentimes what we read in the Old Testament and we see it in the New Testament, at least for us, it doesn't seem to quite fit. Jesus is the Son. He tells us that. And yet here we have a word from you through Isaiah that he is the everlasting Father. For some the image, the picture that comes to mind of a father is not a pleasant one. We think of ancient societies in which the father was a tyrant. He had the power of life and death over everyone in his household. But that's because we're thinking of earthly fathers and not of our heavenly father. You are not a projection. You are there. You have revealed yourself as Father. All fathers are to walk in your image, though sadly few do. 
and the father kings were to do as you did, but they failed to do so. But in Jesus, we see someone doing what Israel had failed to do, to take care of the weak, to bind up the brokenhearted, to seek and to save that which was lost. as we look forward in anticipation to the coming of your son on Christmas, may we be reminded of these royal titles given centuries before his birth, that he is in fact a wonderful counselor, mighty God, and everlasting father. We thank you for his promise that he will be with us to the end of the age. And on this day, in a particular way, we claim that that truth, that promise. As we pray for Dan, pray that you would raise him up. We pray for his family. You would strengthen them. For us, that you would teach us to trust you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for bringing us together to worship you today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.